Well, please take your Bibles and also your bulletins, pages 10 and 11, and 1 Peter chapter 2, the last few verses of chapter 2, and one verse out of chapter 3. It says verse 23, but let's begin with verse 22, where it says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Quoting Isaiah, now verse 23, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is God's word. Let us pray. Marvelous and spectacular in all your ways, O Lord. Help us to see as you see your purposes. Help us to walk with you and trust you. And may that walk and that trust be enriched this morning by consulting your word and sensing your Spirit's work in applying it to our hearts. And in the end, when we go, may we go thanking you for all that you've done for us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm so glad the choir has sung uh, John 3.16 just a few moments ago, because this is, is Peter's John 3.16. This is his pause to express in a few verses the wonder of Calvary and the power of the cross. He has been talking, as we've said, about the dualistic problem we have of living in a world as elect strangers, a phrase he uses in chapter 1, verse 1, saying and, and emphasizing that on the one hand we are chosen and cherished by God, and on the other hand we are aliens and strangers. We sense that he loves us and that he's, we are told that he's interested in us, and yet in our world we find ourselves at odds, sometimes even with ourselves. Having said all this, he says that our purpose then and our, our way forward is to submit and to serve him with gladness and joy. And this is a, p- a passage which begins in verse 11, really, of chapter 2, continues on, particularly in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority, and then going down even into chapter 3. For you notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, he has not only talked about the government and about other authorities, but now he's talking about wives. In the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without the talk of the behavior of their wives, etc. He goes on down. But before getting to that, he pauses memorably here at the end of chapter 2. So we turn to these words. Setting it up in verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
This clearly is referenced to Isaiah 53, and what is to follow is a commentary on that great passage of what he did for us. And it says, it's as if he says, now just a moment here. I've just told you that we should see Jesus as an example that we may follow in his steps, verse 21. Now I want you to listen to what he did for you. And I want you to consider again the cross. And this is especially important because there's so much confusion about who Jesus was, even 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, some say he was only a prophet. Some say he was a prophet and a teacher, a moral um, guide for us. Some say that he was the Savior, but they give an unclear message as to what salvation is. Peter is not unclear. We must understand and remember that for much of his life he was. He thought that Jesus might be the magnificent Messiah who was to come. He thought he might be leading a movement that would end in even his own death, as he said he would be willing to die with Jesus if necessary. And surely he was surprised to find that he was risen from the dead because he had just denied him, fallen asleep and waiting upon him in the garden and outside of Herod's house. So Peter shares that confusion in the course of his life. And in his teaching about the, in Jesus' teaching about the salvation that is to come to all, Peter often said no, not to all, to some, to the Jews. Another issue. But here he seems to clarify in a wonderful way, in his own, as I say, John 3.16. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. This brings us to consider the nature of Jesus' death. As I say in the outline, it is forensic. As we consider what he did for us, as we look at Peter's John 3.16, we see that the first important aspect of his death that is still misunderstood today is that it had a legal and righteous aspect to it. It was judicial. On the central day of history, at the central moment of time, the Chiron, the fulfillment of all the ages, God treated the one who was righteous as if he was unrighteous. He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but he was bearing our sins on the cross. How did that happen? He, as, as I say, he was worth what we owed. A legal transfer of sin. He did not become actually sinful, but legally sinful. And so we become legally righteous, not actually righteous, when we believe in him. He became legally righteous for us, and we became legally righteous in him. The Holy Spirit comes in, and we grow bit by bit in sanctification. So Jesus did not sin even on the cross. He bore our sins. They were placed to his account, and he paid for them. But you notice that even to the end, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And into thy hands I commend my spirit. 
There's no breakdown under the tremendous pressure that he was under. There's no breakdown in his holiness. Righteous to the end. Not because of his own sin in any way, nor did he actually become sinful. But in a legal sense, our sin was transferred to him. It was given to his account, and he became responsible for it in the sense of paying for it. He's the one who made the offer that we ourselves could not have given. So in that sense, he became legally sinful, not actually sinful, and transformed us into becoming legally righteous. You and I are not, at this moment, surely we know, actually righteous. We still struggle with sin. We still bear up under the weight of the old man. We still wrestle with imperfection all the time. But we are legally righteous. We are set free. So that when he says it is finished, we are then set free to go. And we have no more liability. It cannot be tried again, as it were, for what he has purchased. Very significant. Some would say that his death was only a moral example that we ought to give ourselves for others. Yes, and more. And the more is that he became legally sinful and we became legally righteous. This, of course, means that day by day we grow. And it also means that his death was final. If the death of Christ is legal, then it is also final, once for all, once for sin. Many Christians have divided over these words, saying, does it mean for all men? No, it means once for sin, once for... And the newer translations give it that that twist. It's once for sin... We agree that God is holy and that man is sinful, and Christ was the divine Son of God to bring us to God, but communion is, is not renewing our legal standing with God, but it is renewing our fellowship and intimacy with Him. So when He said, It is finished, in John 19.30, it was. It was over. This, of course, is still troublesome today because we, in our struggle with sin, wonder how it could be that we would be forgiven or righteous or deserving of any of his kindnesses because we still are wrestling with it. But indeed, it is final. We have his word on it. If you believe under the application, if you believe his work is finished, then we cannot go back to bondage again. We must forsake the word bondage there and implement this fact in our lives. For example, our conscience, which can be a very good help to us, also can falsely accuse us and be an instrument of the devil to disrupt our understanding. And so we say, how could I be saved if I did that? I need to be saved all over again. How could I be righteous if I, was, if I was capable of this? We need to be saved all over again. No. The conscience can accuse us falsely. It's not an infallible guide. Do not play the game of accusation and do not look to your record. The gospel reminds us that it is finished. He 
himself for our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed, not will be, not are being, past tense. You have been healed. And so when doubts and fears arise, and as we we say with the father of the epileptic man who addressed Jesus, O Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, we go back to the record of Calvary rather than looking to our own record, which is always imperfect. The conscience simply can't be trusted in every case, and Satan will accuse us as much as he can and as often as he can, and he will use other things such as disappointment. There's no doubt that we wrestle with discouragement. If we're honest, we sometimes even reach into despair. This is often because we are trying to be what only God, what only Christ can be for us. We are still trying to be our own Savior. You will not find closure that way. You do not have to finish his work. It is finished. You seek perfection in life, but only he is perfect. Disappointment comes from putting our hopes in the wrong things. And when they disappoint us, as they always will, we are discouraged. But when our hope and focus is upon Christ and his righteousness, remembering that we were like sheep going astray, but now he has brought us back to himself, then those disappointments don't weigh so heavily. You do not have to finish his work. One of, the, one of the pathologies of this, one of the ways our minds work is to say, you know, he's given me so much. Why can't I just do what he tells me? I ought to be able, he gave me 99.9%. I ought to be able to finish it. And I can't. If I was a better Christian, X, Y, Z... If I were more faithful, A, B, C. And so our mind continues to turn. And when we place our trust in in, in other things that might give us what we think is satisfaction, then we become discouraged and disappointed because they can never be our Savior. Another way we see this is in our cynicism, in our humor. We often do put-down humor, bitter, sarcastic sort of things. Some of us have no humor at all because we are fragile and we are radically insecure. But the cross means that we do not have to take ourselves seriously. We can be self-effacing, self-forgetful, and it can make, me, make us playful and, and we can laugh. We're not afraid because the verdict is in and you're safe. I don't have to be defensive because I've always already been defended and set free. Now, again, the devil in the world will tell you, no, no, you're never safe. You've got to keep working. You've got to keep performing. But the Christian message is that his performance has become ours. And our performance is no longer necessary because his performance is final and conclusive. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You are safe. You cannot be put in jeopardy again. Once saved, always saved. 
Believe it. Because your mind will tell you differently and your circumstances and experience may even raise doubts. The scriptures say you are his. Relax. His performance has given you the result. Your performance is unnecessary. Faithfulness, gratitude, sure. But that's not what we're first plagued with. Our first plague is, how can I measure up? How can I do enough? How can I be acceptable to him? Notice in the opening statements of the bulletin on page one at the top, something to reflect on as we come to worship. Believers are adopted into God's family, so we already have our affirmation. Christians have been justified in God's sight, so we have nothing to prove. We have been saved through a dying sacrifice, so we are free to be a living one. His children are loved ceaselessly, so they can work tirelessly in response to a quiet inner fullness. All of this leads us to worship the one who accomplished this for us. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not sin and retaliate, though he may have. When he suffered, he made no threats, though he surely could have. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's what we do as we trust in Christ. We entrust ourselves to what he did for us. And it's a marvelous exchange of his righteousness for our sin. And our sin goes to him. As a result, the great transaction is at the heart of Calvary. The great exchange between God and man. We gave up. In fact, he took from us our sin. He bore our sins upon the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and have the sin problem cared for and live to righteousness and have that matter resolved. Now, I passed over the reference earlier. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where the same thing is expressed in Paul's words, really part one of... Paul's John 3.16s, where in verse 21, we read, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Forensic, final. He did it as a great transaction Because we needed it and because he wanted to. He was hardly invited or well-treated when he was here. He was hardly thanked by his scared disciples. But he did it because he wanted to. And he had carried out this exchange, which Paul puts in these memorable and very helpful, brief and succinct words. God made him... Remember we said already he had no sin to be sin for us. He, actually, he didn't actually become sin, but he became counted as sinful. He still hurled no insults and made no threats. 
He still did not sin on the cross, but his righteousness, even up until the end when he says it is finished, and into thy hands I commend my spirit, even to the end, his righteousness holds. He never gives in. None of Satan's tricks work on him. He holds himself righteous to the end. And therefore, he gives us a truly pure and wonderful gift of eternal life and of righteousness for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No, not actually righteous, but we become righteous in the, in, in counted as righteous, considered righteous, forgiven. In the courtroom today, we make only an approximation of this, but when someone is exonerated, we say they are not guilty and cannot be tried again. The case is closed on that particular matter. In the same way, we cannot be tried again. His righteousness has been placed to our account, and we have it. Now let's go to the third thing. His death was also voluntary, not only final, and forensic, but voluntary. He did not retaliate. He made no threats. Jesus died voluntarily and is the only one who has done so. Think of this now. Everyone else who's lived has had to die, save him. He did not have to die anyway. Others who died for friends or family had to die anyway. Death is a penalty and an enemy because of our sin, but it had no rights over him. This was a new thought to me as I worked on the sermon. I hadn't thought of it. But it's true, isn't it? He didn't have to die ever because he had no sin. He could have lived forever. Now, if I give my life for my family or or in, in battle, in the military or something, I, I was going to die anyway. I may have moved the date up a little bit, so to speak, but I was going to die anyway. He wasn't going to die anyway. He was the eternal Son of God. And from all eternity to all eternity remains. But in his human nature, he did die. Death is a penalty and an enemy because of our sin, but it had no rights over him. It was a supreme act of authority by Christ. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it up. I surrender it. I lay it down for my disciples. He had authority over his own life. When we die, we are out of options. Right? We're out of options. There's no medical treatment that can help us. We can't add any more. That's one of the frustrating things about moving towards death is your choices become very few. But he had all options. He was in complete control of himself. He offered himself, put himself under the Romans, put himself under the Jewish authorities, put himself under the wrath of his father. Not because he had to. Lazarus was going to die anyway. Jesus raised him back and he died later. Jesus wasn't going to die. And as I say, a supreme act of authority, he gives himself. He lays down his life for his people. What kept him on the cross? Was it the nails? No. At any moment, he could have left. It was his love for you that kept him there. For he himself said, no one takes my life from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. This is marvelous. This is the central fact of the gospel. The transaction at Calvary is somewhat abstract, you know, righteousness and unrighteousness. But the voluntary nature of it brings it home and personalizes it and rings our heart's bell to know that he would do this when he never had to endure the pains of death. The one man in all eternity who never had to legally face death did it voluntarily for me. It's astonishing and very helpful because the Bible is comprised of words, but it is based on actions. It begins with the creation of Genesis 1 and continues to the second coming of of Revelation 22. And in the meantime, there are the acts of God that are described in words, but are based on the objective truth. And the objective truth of Calvary is that the great transaction happened as a result of the willingness of the Son to come, to suffer, to die, to trust himself to one who he knew would judge justly and to give himself up in an ocean of love for his people. He didn't have to do it. So the results. To bring us to God. First of all, how could he love me after what I have done, you say? Well, maybe not in church, but you wonder that. How could he love me when he knows me better than I know myself? The answer, you cannot wear him out. His love is unbreakable. The door is always open for return. He already endured infinite sin for you. If you have fallen, there is unbelievable comfort in his presence. Yes. Now, if you say with Paul in in Romans 1, may we sin so that grace may abound, may it never be. We'll get to that. But the foundation of that question is, am I really loved like that? Am I really and truly? I've never known a love like that. Your parents can't love you like this because they're sinners too. And this world will never provide that kind of shelter and support. No one can do this. Only one. Only the Savior. So you've never been loved like this. It's, it's foreign to us. And yet it's true. To bring us to God, he used an unbreakable love. For Christ died for sins, verse 18, once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That was the purpose. It wasn't to display his love only or to enact this great transaction of righteousness and unrighteousness. It was to bring you to God. And as he says in verse 25 of chapter 2, now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The purpose of the whole thing is that you may have fellowship with him, that you may have friendship with the divine. How can that be? I don't know. But the whole Bible stands on that. That man could love God is no less amazing than that God could love man. But he wants us to be his friends. He wants us to be in compassion and relationship with him. Jesus says there in the upper room, I don't no longer call you uh, followers, but friends. 
The purpose of this is to bring us to God, that we might have fellowship with him. And that we might die to sin in this world and live to righteousness. The cross does not encourage us to sin. The reason Jesus died and became sin for us was so that we would die to sins and live to righteousness. He died so that we would not do this evil. And, he, and the question is, will we seek to frustrate the point of his suffering? We don't want to think of it, but the cross forces us to think of it this way. Because his love is unbreakable, how can I do this to him? How can I sin on purpose, intentionally, when he's done so much for me? It's a problem that each one must answer. It's unavoidable. How could you do this to me? And the answer is, I shouldn't have, and I can't. I surrender. I give in. You're right. You love me too much to let me just act foolishly. Application. Do you have some sin in your life today that you need to let go of? Then do it. In the light of such grace and mercy and forgiveness, it's a small thing. What is it about that that's so persistent? Well, the Satan is involved, surely, the kingdom of darkness, pride, and a lot of reasons. But they don't stand up to the light of the gospel. Do you have something in your life today that will enable you to stand before God with your head up and no shame if you were to meet him? Look at the cross. He stuck with you when, he was, when it was hard. And if he could put up with that for me, then I can put up with this for him. And then finally, to obey him and to follow the way of the cross sometimes feels like a death. Because we don't want to give these things up. For some reason, they've gotten a little hold of us. They hold a corner of our heart. But it always, in giving it up, leads to resurrection. We say, how can I make it without this? How can I, how, this has become a, an old friend, so to speak. This, is, this habit and this hatred of the word of, word of God has become a way of life for me. But if you die to it, it will always lead to resurrection. You will live. You will flourish. You will, you will be under the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we're very grateful this morning that Peter stopped in the midst of his encouraging words of Second, First Peter chapter 2 and then into chapter 3 to, to let us see again the meaning of all this. And to walk again the road to Calvary and to see what he did for us And then to ask in the light of Calvary, what about me? Have you taken Christ as your Savior? Have you had the pleasure of having his record become yours and your record become lost after having become his? That's really what it's about. Your record he took and threw away. 
and his record became yours and now speaks for you before the throne of God. What a beautiful story. Why not take it? It's a gift. Receive it and believe and trust in him. And you don't have to be very old before you said, yes, I believe those things and I want him as my savior, but I want this too. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. No, you don't. No, you don't. Whatever it is that stands between you and God, must go. It's puny. It's lifeless. It can't help you. It may have become a habit. It may have become a way, but it's deadly, damaging. And so guilt can be a good thing, too. And the conscience can work on us in a positive way. I've talked about the conscience accusing us falsely, but we can also hear its clear message now to say, Lord, I surrender to you those things which have become too dear, those secondary things which I've made too important. And so we rejoice. The cricket is singing his praises. He's been joining me all morning. He heard your praises and joined in. All of creation praises the Savior. What a marvelous gift. You are loved with an everlasting love. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we know that we're we're thankful for this message because we won't hear it anywhere else. In our own minds and in this world, we'll hear all about our record and our performance. And we begin to think that that's the way to get to God, by being good, by doing the right things. And then you remind us again, as you have today, that there was one who did not hurl insults back and made no threats, who was the shepherd and overseer of our souls and who said, it is finished and accomplished for us what we could never have done for ourselves and did it because he wanted to. This is the gospel, and it is the good news that changed Peter's life and that he hoped would change the lives of the people to whom he was writing down to us today. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to let go of those things which we cherish, which are wrong. Attitudes, actions, practices, even principles which are anti-biblical. And enable us this day to surrender to you in faith and trust, because we know you judge justly, and our Savior walked this way. And Jesus, thank you. You didn't have to die. You were under no obligation, but you did. And we spend now and all eternity thanking you for rescuing us through Christ our Lord. Amen.